3: I'm Bryce Clem with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 18th, 2021. Cyber attacks targeting the Internet of Things, or IoT, have become extremely common. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from September 2018, where Bruce Schneier, security technologist and author of Click Here to Kill Everybody, joined Benjamin Wittes to talk about how the drastic expansion of the so-called Internet of Things vastly increases the risk of cyberattack.
1: I'm Michaela Fogel, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 18th, 2018. Security technologist Bruce Schneier's latest book, Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World, argues that it won't be long before everything modern society relies on will be computerized and on the internet. This drastic expansion of the so-called Internet of Things, Schneir contends, vastly increases the risks of cyber attack. To help figure out just how concerned you should be, last Thursday, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Schnair. They talked about what it would mean to live in a world where everything, including Ben's shirt, were a computer, and how Schneer’s latest work adds to his decades of advocacy for principled government regulation and oversight of quote-unquote smart devices. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 348. Bruce Schneier on Click Here to Kill Everybody.
0: I wasn't going to start here, but let's start here. This book has a very interesting uh, relationship to a book that Gabby Bloom and I wrote a number of years ago uh, called The Future of Violence. So start by talking about it in relation to that.
3: I'm not sure I can to the... Degree that I should, because I haven't read The Future of Violence since it came out, so we can figure out what our differences are. I, I'm approaching cybersecurity as now being applicable to everything. My starting point is that everything is a computer. So all of the lessons and problems and realities of cybersecurity become everything security, whether it's your car or a major appliance or a power plant, it is a computer that can affect the world in a direct physical manner. And that's my starting point. So it's not starting, starting with crime. I'm starting with the technical realities. And I look at what governments do, what corporations do, what criminals do, and then how do we build security given that reality. What I remember of your book really started with criminals doing bad things and looked at the new ways they can do these bad things – and the difficulty of law enforcement at stopping them or finding them and arresting them.
0: All right. So let's let's start with your with your central observation with which you begin the book, which is that everything's a computer. How literally do you mean this? so you talk in the introduction about your shirt being a computer. Give the listener an idea of how literally you mean everything, uh, you you talk about it becoming cheaper and more cost-effective to have a microprocessor in a T-shirt than not to. So let's start with the question, how literally should we take the everything is a computer idea? I take it pretty literally.
3: Computers in things is not new. What's changing is the computer becomes the core. So your iPhone really is a computer that happens to make phone calls and your refrigerator is a computer that keeps things cold and your microwave oven is a computer that makes things hot and an atm is a computer with money inside uh, a car is a computer with four wheels and an engine and that to me is the difference that's a key difference that these are now computers that affect the world in a direct physical manner that we're giving computers eyes and ears right they sense and giving them hands and feet, they do things. And the world of physically capable computers is fundamentally different than the world of computers that only just touch data, even if that data was financial data, right? Banking data, important data. That computers that could in theory kill you are a different sort of animal.
0: All right. So let's talk about the shirt that's really a computer or the computer that you wear on your torso to – Take your metaphor, it's at face value. Why would anyone put a microprocessor in a shirt?
3: You put a microprocessor in a shirt because it'll tell you information about that shirt that you want. Now, it's not going to be you, the consumer, it's going to be the manufacturer, and it might be tracking uh, shipments, it could tell you how long it's been on the shelf, it could discount itself, and what's driving it is less that functionality, which sounds pretty benign, but the fact that the chips are getting so cheap... That if you want to do inventory tracking, that'll be the cheapest way to do it. And as long as there's a computer on your shirt, you could have it like advertise sales. You can have it, you know, tell the customer's phone that Starbucks has a a discount coupon. I'm making this stuff up. But it's being driven by the dropping cost of putting computers in things, right? Your refrigerator had computation. It, It had electronics in it before. What's it different? sense whether the temperature was where you set right. it and make adjustments. What's different is 20 years ago when Westinghouse designed a refrigerator, they would design a specially-purpose chip to do that. Today, it is cheaper to pull a general-purpose computer off the shelf and stick it in the refrigerator. And that general-purpose computer comes with internet access. It comes with video software. It comes with microphone software. That's all built in. So the marginal cost of adding that functionality drops very cheap. So now an engineer says, you know, here's something cool I can detect when the milk is spoiled. And suddenly it's in the refrigerator. More kind of silly applications show up. And eventually all refrigerators are computers. And my guess is that there will be some really interesting and Amazing functionality that we can't imagine that will occur when our appliances and clothing and toys and consumer goods are all computers and all talking to each other. I mean, it sounds bizarre now. You know, why would I have that? The curmudgeon in us says, and my guess it'll become indispensable in surprising ways. I'm talking about the risks of it.
0: Right. So before before we get to the risks of it, which is, of course, the body of the book and will be the body of the conversation, but I'm interested in exploring the fact of it first. I don't want to wear a computer instead of a shirt. And you have an interesting little anecdote about how you tried to buy a car that was not a computer and failed. So how long is it going to be before I – try to buy a shirt that isn't a computer and fail?
3: I yeah, don't know. It's going to depend on on how fast the price drops. Now, now, to be fair, there existed cars that didn't have an internet connection, but they weren't in the class of car I wanted to buy. Right, So it's there's going to be some differentiation. I mean, now you can't buy a refrigerator that isn't a computer. I mean, they all are computers. They're not all on the internet yet, but my guess is that's coming pretty soon. Right? Major appliances are coming within a couple of years. And then it starts dropping down to other consumer goods as the price drops. You want to buy a sous vide machine? I'm pretty sure all of them that are for sale now have interconnections and you control them from your smartphone. So there's an appliance. It's a new type of appliance where they're all computers.
0: All right. So we should imagine a world soon where – Essentially, all of the consumer products that we buy and use are, A, computerized, but B, not merely computerized, but network computerized and computerized with general purpose computers that are internet connected and in conversation with other things. Internet things on steroids, you call it the internet plus. Again, What's your time horizon for that kind of total penetration?
3: Now, it might be a decade away. I'm actually really bad at a time because it's going to depend on, on so many technical details. But again, you sort of look at some of the appliances that are hard to get that are not – they're hard to get them to not be on the internet. Modern thermostats pretty much all have internet connections and you control them for your iPhone. You now, for me, that's great. I travel a lot. It has risks. We, we talked about cars. I think we'll see the same thing for air conditioners. And then it really is a matter of how cheap the parts get. There are lots of interconnected toys right now. All drones have internet connections. There's no such thing as a drone that isn't interconnected. And consumer goods are, are going to head that way. High-end coffee machines. Nowadays, if you're going to buy any kind of surveillance camera, it's internet connected. If you're going to buy uh, a, a DVR, a digital video recorder of some sort, it's not just uh, passively playing tapes. It is on the internet, and there probably isn't a way to get one that isn't. You know, I mean, here the functionality is greater, but now it's just a matter of cost.
0: Okay. Now let's talk about the security environment that this creates. Everything is connected, everything is a really cheap computer designed with no security in mind. Sounds like a nightmare.
3: And so far, it kind of has been in, in the security sense that uh, the same ecosystem of that we get on our iPhones or in our, our laptops where there's an engineering team at Apple and Microsoft, Google, and other companies that design them properly and are on hand to uh, write patches doesn't exist in a lot of these consumer products. They're designed Offshore by third parties, teams come together, write the software, break apart. There's a vulnerability in your digital video recorder and there isn't a group of engineers who can write the patch. And even worse, there often isn't a way to patch them. You want to patch your DVR and you throw it away and buy a new one. And that's a real problem. So we're building a world where all the realities of computer security become broadly applicable, but the economic models are so different – that they don't work. So for example, we get security by the fact that our computers and phones tend to have short lives. Three to five years we replace these devices. And they get replaced with devices that are safer and more secure. I mean, Apple, Microsoft, they're all making improvements. Consumer goods have a longer life cycle. A DVR might be 10 years, a refrigerator 25 years. You buy a car today, let's let's sort of play this out. Software is two years old. You drive for 10 years, sell to somebody, they drive for 10 years, sell to somebody else who puts it on a boat, sends it to South America, someone else buys it, drives for 10 to 20 years. So try to find a computer now from 1976, boot it up, try to make it secure. We have no idea how to secure 40-year-old software at the consumer level. We haven't the faintest clue. We've never done that before. Yet we're going to have to figure it out, that there are going to be these low-grade computers on on the internet, until they get thrown away. And they won't be patched, and they won't be improved. They'll be just as lousy as when they started. And and we're stuck with it, because that model of patching worked great for phones, worked great for computers, but fails with consumer devices.
0: And just to be clear about the reason... When you use a phone, even though we call it a phone, we know it's a computer. And so you download software to it and you have an ongoing relationship with the software providers, including the mega provider, Apple, that's providing the whole operating environment. And that creates this relationship in which they can patch the things that you've downloaded. The companies that operate through the store can can do that. When you buy the internet-connected shirt, it's just an object. There's no ongoing software relationship. Is that the reason? And it's
3: a much lower profit margin. I mean, Apple wants that device to be patched, wants it to be constantly working well, wants you to buy a new one in a few years. The business relationship that produced that shirt isn't the same. You know, that, that computer might have been there just for inventory. And now it probably talks to your washing machine and tells them how much detergent to use and what sort of cycle to, to operate in. So it, its functionality is so low and limited, and there isn't an ongoing relationship. It's also so low cost. For cars, you're going to see patches. You, right now, you know, Tesla cars are patched overnight while you sleep because they are – designed as computers. You know, compare that to, I think it was 2014, there was a, a vulnerability in Chrysler's that required everybody to take their car back to the dealership because there was no automatic patching mechanism. Like Chrysler, I believe, is going to learn and start treating their cars more like computers. Tesla started out in the computer age, they knew what they were getting into. But, you know, that's an expensive device.
0: So the higher end the item is the more you're going to have security concerns built in from the beginning. So the locus of the concern here is the proliferation of low-end, essentially the disposable razors of computers that are going to be built with bad security and there's no way to patch a razor.
3: I have concerns at sort of all levels. At the higher end, at, at cars, there's going to be more security, but the threat's much greater. Right. You know, someone hacks they, your car. They move and and they're big. And they're big and they're made of metal and they kill people. I mean, cars are like the most dangerous thing that most of us in our life interact with at a regular basis. There there is nothing more dangerous in our life for, for most of us. Now, driverless cars are going to be orders of magnitude safer, but again, because they're computers, they fail differently. So normal cars fail. They have parts, parts fail, meet time machine failures, we can calculate how often cars will fail. We have repair shops, we know how they we know how that works. Computers fail kind of all or nothing. All computers work perfectly till one day when none of them do. And that kind of class break, which is what we call it in computers, is about to come to everything. And so the title of my book, which is the provocative click here to kill everybody, is about that class break. That there could be one attack. That takes out everything. So an example we've already seen is is Amity. Amity makes uh, key card locks for hotels. So if you stay at a hotel and you wave your card and the door unlocks, that is likely an Omidy system. There was a vulnerability discovered in their locks that rendered every single lock of theirs deployed around the world insecure, right? Suddenly, none of them are secure. The way you fix them is you manually go to every door of every hotel room with a vulnerable lock. And that means it'll never happen. And that kind of failure mode doesn't exist for a mechanical key lock. They don't fail that way. So higher end, there's going to be more security because there's more money. It's a bigger financial transaction, but there's also a lot more risk. Going up to power plants, which also have a lot more security and much, much more risk and state actors going after them.
0: All right. So let's talk about those state actors. Let's talk about Vladimir Putin and let's talk about a world in which my shirt, my coffee maker, uh, my refrigerator, my laundry, my car are all in this ecosystem. Obviously, the attack surface is enormously greater, but if you were advising a state actor on the offensive side, and you argue in the book that we have to focus much more on defense, but let's let's first think about it as an offense question. This stuff is proliferating. How
3: do you think about it? It's all interconnected. What we're seeing is that as we interconnect things, vulnerabilities in one thing affect other things. So the botnet, 2016, these were vulnerabilities in trivial devices, internet-connected webcams and DVRs. Someone, almost certainly not a state actor, dragooned a bunch of them, I think about a million, into a botnet that attacked a domain name server, one of the key parts of the internet. As a result, uh, took about a, a couple of dozen of popular websites offline. So you're a state actor, you start looking at these little vulnerabilities because they can be turned into bigger vulnerabilities. There's an article I saw just the other day, vulnerability to internet connected electrical outlets that can be used to attack other devices in a home network, right? So if I am a spy agency from any country, maybe that's an entree into someone's computer, into someone's business network, into a government network. There was a story earlier this year, a casino in Vegas had their high roller database stolen by an attacker that got into the casino's secure network through their internet connected fish tank. So there are vulnerabilities that have surprising consequences. And right now, if you are any kind of, of actor, whether it's a government or a, a criminal organization, you kind of want to see what you can do and see what you can get because you're likely to be pleasantly surprised.
0: All right. So the economist
3: sitting here would say – This is not the magazine though. This is the profession.
0: No, the profession. <laughs> I mean we're, we're sitting in the Brookings Institution. We got a lot of economists around. If one of them were in the room – I suspect he or she would say, wait a minute, why isn't this a self correcting problem? You have uh, the proliferation of this stuff until the financial costs of the vulnerabilities that they create exceed the financial uh, efficiencies of doing it that way, at which point people will invest in security. And I can see you beginning to grin because you've been answering this question for 30 years, but let's go through it. Why doesn't the economics of cybersecurity at some point catch up with the degree of vulnerability and say that marginal inclusion of the microprocessor in the
3: underwear is really more vulnerability than it's financially worth? So there the a bunch of answers. The first one is that companies are really good ex- at externalizing costs, that the companies don't bear those costs. So it was. it's about a year after Equifax. We had the one-year anniversary, I think, a couple of weeks ago. That was a big deal privacy loss. Pretty much all Americans had personal information stolen. That company had a lot of bad press. There were hearings. I was on Capitol Hill. I testified for Congress. There were angry congressmen on both sides of the aisle. And here we are one year later, and absolutely nothing has happened. So the economist at Equifax is going to say, you know, the right thing for us to do is to ignore cybersecurity, take the chance. If we get unlucky, We'll get a couple of months of bad press. People will yell at us. Nothing will happen. We're way more profitable if we ignore the problem. So that's part of it. That the problems are not directly affecting the customers. Right? I am not Equifax's customer. I can't even fire them. I don't even know. I didn't even know they had my stuff. The other is that uh, consumers are actually very bad and making buying decisions based on security. So again, it makes financial sense not to do a good job because you're not going to be rewarded in the marketplace. And we know this from history. You Go back to the past 100 or so years, you can't find a single industry that has improved safety or security without being forced to by a government. Cars, planes, drugs and pharmaceuticals, medical devices in general, food production, restaurants, consumer goods workplace safety, most recently financial product safety, that again and again, the market doesn't reward making it safe and secure. The market rewards making it cheap, making it fast, making it feature rich, taking your chances, knowing that your penalties are just not going to outweigh the cost savings of not having enough security and safety. So in my book, I argue that the, the missing piece here is government, that it's not it, it – it is a tech problem, but it's primarily a policy problem, that we need to get these costs internalized so a company says, you know, it is much cheaper for us to build a, build it securely than it is not to because right now the economics goes the other way.
2: It's that time of the year Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: All right. So you've you've said the magic word regulation. You've said it in a deregulatory environment. What do you want to regulate? What do you want companies to be forced to do that they are not today forced to do?
3: In general, to produce more secure products and services. Now, that's a very complicated question. I don't think there's one answer, and in my book, I talk about a lot of different levers of regulation. So uh, walk us through. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, we might have you know rigid, rigid standards, and, and we can see analogs. You know, seatbelts have to meet this kind of standard; they're very exacting. Some of them are more flexible regulations. Uh, you have to take due care, and what that means changes depending on what the environment is. Some of it is liability. That if you do something that causes harm, you can be held liable, and you know the problem we've always had in privacy is proving the link from the the, the damage to the harm. Right, so Equifax can can rightly say if you go to them and say my identity was stolen and uh, these bad things happened, they would say how can you prove it's us? And they're right. Your identity was probably stolen half a dozen times. So we in society know how to do that. There are statutory damages where the the harm is the incident, and you don't necessarily have to prove that you know the particular disease you got was from that asbestos. That you know that the asbestos itself is the harm. We have that in copyright. We have that in in wiretapping. So I look to the courts. I look to the federal agencies. I look somewhat to Congress. Some of it to treaties. You know we need government to step in and change the economic landscape right right now there's no incentive for companies to improve security and my goal here is to spur innovation right the standard canard is if you regulate it will stifle innovation two answers to that one is well you know maybe that's a good thing if innovation can kill you we want a little less of it we do that in pharmaceuticals we deliberately slow that innovation because it is so dangerous to have unfettered innovation and some of it is that uh, if you have an incentive for security, companies will innovate. I think a great example is the credit card industry, that uh, in the early, de- early decades of credit cards, consumers were on the hook for all losses if a card was lost or stolen. And the, comp- and the credit companies pushed all of them onto consumers. 1978, we got the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and that's when Congress limited personal liability to $50. And what that meant was that the credit card companies were losing money due to theft and losses for stupid things that the users did. And in response, they invented a lot of security. All the security you see in credit cards is because of that. And that's online verification of card validity. That's mailing a card and requiring activation. That's anti-forgery devices like holograms and microprinting. And the most important is the back-end uh, expert systems that look through the credit card transaction database for fraudulent spending patterns. If the users, consumers were on the hook for fraud, we would never see the any of those because consumers weren't in the position to design them, to field them. I want to make the entity that is in the best position to fix the problem responsible for the problem, right? I want to move the liability to the entity that can fix it. And it's not the consumer, it's going to be the manufacturers, it's going to be the networks, it's going to be the cloud providers and the social networks and and all of those, the telcos, that's where it can be fixed. So I need to push the responsibility onto them. Otherwise, we don't improve. So this is a huge
0: policy lift. And you have been arguing in my memory for software liability, for example, since the 90s, as best as I can remember, and maybe longer ago than that. And you persuaded me of it a long time ago. And Paul Rosenzweig has argued for it. A lot of other smart people have argued for it. And it has gotten exactly nowhere. And I am totally sympathetic with the idea that the bearer of all risk should not be the end user in in these uh, systems, particularly as the systems get more and more esoteric and less and less understandable to the user what the system is even doing in the product that they've purchased. But I am very skeptical that there are clear mechanisms to get this done. So in the federal communications space... The answer was a 1930s statute that says, yeah, whatever's in the public interest. You know, <laughs> you know, the FCC should go have a public interest rulemaking. How broad or narrow do you think legislation needs to be in
3: order to authorize whom to do this? So my guess is we're going to back into it because in software, there's deliberately no liabilities. That was a decision we made. But as software moves into things, those things already have liabilities. There's already liability rules about cars, about consumer goods, about appliances, about – Pacemakers. Pace, right, medical devices, even clothing, right? I mean there are rules about uh, liabilities if, if you know, manufacturer makes flammable clothing. And as those things become computers, the existing regulatory agencies – are not going to say, well, you know, there's now a computer in a refrigerator. I guess we don't have any jurisdiction over it anymore. Right? That's not going to happen. So already the government agencies that have jurisdictions over these areas of, of, of our life are looking at computers, right? The FDA is already paying attention to this and the, the FTC is and, and everybody is. So I think it's going to come there first and then it'll backflow into – you know, straight computers and phones. I don't think. I think the lift gets lighter because computers are going everywhere, and that's that surprised me. I didn't expect that because yes, I think this is a, an idea, and I've been talking about it since the since the nineties.
0: All right, so let's let's talk about an extreme application, which is uh, the Federal Aviation Administration has basically one responsibility, which is to pre- prevent planes from crashing. There are these known cases in which people have been able to take control over or to hack planes through the avionics systems, through the entertainment systems from the ground.
3: Right. And there's one, uh, the DHS demonstrated this. And we don't know the details, but the US government has demonstrated this to themselves. So it's not just hackers you don't trust.
0: So it's reasonable to expect, right, that... At some point, the FAA says, wait a minute, we need to have some way into something that could bring down an airplane.
3: I think, I think there is. I think the FAA is struggling with this now. This is hard because it's new, because I think people don't know how to regulate computers in the same way you can regulate other consumer goods or, or even things like aircraft or, or, or power plants.
0: My point is that as a, as, a, as a statutory matter, the FAA is never going to look at a Boeing 757 and say, well, it's not really an airplane. As Bruce Schneier said, uh, it, it's just a computer that flies or a series of computer that flies. They're going to look at it and say
3: it's an airplane. Right. I mean they're going to look at, at, at what it does. And I talk about this in my book and I think this is a, 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 a mismatch between policy right now. That government operates in silos, right? The FAA regulates aircraft, DOT regulates cars, and someone else regulates consumer goods or appliances or radios and telephones. But they're all computers, and they're all the same computers increasingly, right? It's the same CPU. So we need some consolidation of expertise, even though the applications are widely different. And in my book, it really is a straw man, but I talk about the formation of a new government agency that, like many technologies of the past century, uh, notably cars, planes, radio, nuclear power, that there is this need in government to consolidate expertise. But we won't be able to – we're not going to say the Department of Computers is going to regulate everything now. It will still be – FAA regulating airplanes. So I want some organizational structure where there's a commonality of expertise advising these verticals of use. The model I use in my book is the the director of national intelligence as as an agency, sort of overarching separate intelligence agencies. It's not a great analogy, but it's sort of what I found that, that half mirrors that. But we need to figure out some way to address the commonality. It's all the same CPU. It might even be all the same operating system that's in the ATM machine and the voting machine and the refrigerator and the car. Yet the uses are, are widely different and require different security rules. Right? The rules for uh, your implanted pacemaker is not going to be the same rule for an interconnected doll. Right.
0: All right. So this brings me to what I thought as I was reading this is the the sort of almost metaphysical question that I have about the thesis, which is you start with the idea that everything is a computer now and just different computers that, you know, some of them have wings on them. Some of them have can make phone calls, some of them. But my question is, is that a reasonable basis to regulate. So you can also say everything is just plastic because the building material that is going to be in all of these things is some form of petroleum distillate plastics. You could also say that, you know, everything is a is copper particularly a century ago all these things became electrical, right? And we didn't redefine everything in terms of their regulatory place based on the components that went into them. We, re- we defined them according to the function that they were playing and the dangers of not regulating them based on what they were and what they did. And so isn't there a danger in saying, well, now since everything is a computer, we have to regulate computers and that's everything. And yeah, we'll still have some functional distinctions, but there are these overarching common threads and we're going to regulate those as such. Don't you worry about defining everything as the same thing?
3: I do. And then the difference between computers and your other examples is how different they are. Right? So copper wasn't a big deal. In fact, something's made of copper, no one cares. Plastic was a little bit of a big deal. I mean, there are regulations at what sort of plastics you're allowed to sell. Some plastics are deemed poisonous, and regardless of application, they're illegal. So the fact that everything is plastic matters a little bit. And there's a tiny bit of overarching regulation somewhere. I don't even know where. But the fact that everything is a computer is a big change. I spent a couple of pap- chapters in the book talking about why that is a major difference. So why a, is it a major difference? It's a major difference because the way computers fail, because the way they can be attacked, because of the risks, because and this has to do with complexity and interconnections and software quality and extensibility that make the thing different when it's a computer. The fact that your refrigerator is a computer makes it a different animal than it was before even though it still makes things cold. And yes, there are going to be some refrigerator-specific regulations that are going to involve the the chemicals used to refrigerate, the the fluorocarbons and and energy efficiency. And I don't don't know refrigerator rules, but there's also going to be a need for something common because that CPU can be used to take out the power grid. So this is a paper that appeared last month. Someone realized that Internet-connected appliances, major appliances like refrigerators and air conditioners, if they're hacked, someone can cycle the power of a whole bunch of them in synchronization and thereby dramatically affect the load on a local power plant and cause a blackout. All right Now, I never thought of that. But as soon as someone says it, that's immediately obvious. That is an attack that is fundamentally impossible for a non-computer refrigerator. That is a not just a change of degree. It's a change of kind. Right? There is a non-refrigerator problem there. That attack has nothing to do with it being a refrigerator. All it has to do with it draws a lot of power and we can hack it. That's going to require regulation that is orthogonal to its refrigeration capability. And we need to figure out how to do that. You know, I'm not wedded to my proposal of how, but we need a how.
0: All right. One more thing thing, and then I w- we should wrap up. There is a argument that often comes up in response to arguments like this one. And I'm thinking here of people like Dan Gere, who say, actually, it's hopeless, right? The problem is we're over invested in technology that cannot be secured, and that certain things need to be offline. And certain things, you you know, we're kidding ourselves if we think we can kind of get to a world of reasonable security, investing this degree of vulnerability and attack surface in everything we touch and do. And so I want to finish with the question of, is that wrong? Is it hopeless? And are we negotiating the deck chairs on the Titanic here, and we're saying, well, you know, liability rules should look like this, and we should have this kind of cross-cutting regulation. And actually, if you have a world in which your shirt is hackable and my shirt is hackable and the refrigerator can take down the power grid and every car can be individually hacked and driven off a cliff at the will of every foreign government, that is not a secure world And it doesn't matter what the regulatory environment is. Actually, the nature of the enterprise is a ship heading toward an iceberg. Is the conclusion from what you're saying properly much more radical than you're willing to face?
3: I am more optimistic than that. I mean, it's notoriously hard to predict the future. And it could be that we are technologically advancing ourselves out of civilization. I don't think so. I mean, these problems are hard, but they're they're go to the moon hard. They're not faster than night travel hard. And I think what's missing are the incentives to solve them. I have a lot of sympathy for something shouldn't be on the internet. I talk in the book about the need to decentralize and to take things offline. But I don't think that's gonna be a big component of the solution. I don't think we're going to deny ourselves out of this. I think we're gonna have to invent ourselves out of this. Long term. I do think we will make more deliberate decisions about what we connect, that right now we are living in a connected all world and that will change and that we will be smarter about it. analogy might be nuclear power. In right? the 1970s, nuclear power was going to be everything. We had some accidents and nuclear power didn't go away, but it became, you know, one of, a, one of, one of the pieces of a complex energy mix. And I think we're going to see the Internet like that. It's not going to be everything because that is just too dangerous. But there's a lot of tech we can deploy that we have now that we're not. I think there's a lot of good tech to invent. We haven't even talked about AI. AI is a surprising wild card here. And I think AI will benefit the defense much more than the attacker. You know, probably sooner than we think. You know, that's a whole other other discussion. But again, it's it's inventing ourselves out of it, not denying ourselves out of it. So, you know, in my darker days, I worry Dan Gere is right In my brighter days, I think we can lick this. The book is
0: Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. Bruce Schneier, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Bruce Schneier for coming on the show. If you haven't yet, please take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.